what is it that we should be doing and participating in and working through as we join in, in our worship service and our time together as a church? Well, those are all very good questions, and I'm sure glad you asked them. <laughs> because we're going through our book. This, If you haven't, uh, if you don't know this yet, we have already gone through the book of Colossians. Colossians was a, a very good, uh, interesting book. We went through the book of Philippians prior to that. And, uh, and so we've been going through the New Testament uh, on a systematic basis. And we are now starting in the book of Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible with you, raise your hand. We have some Bibles that we'd like to give you if you, if you don't have one. If you have one, great, open it up to 1 Thessalonians. And I can tell you exactly where to find 1 Thessalonians. It's a very simple place to find it. It's right next to 2 Thessalonians. And uh, if, if you don't know where that's at, well, you know, in the Bibles that we're handing out to you right now or that are out there, we, you, if you turn to page 986, you would be on 1 Thessalonians. Now, if you have a different Bible, uh, it might, the, the numbers might be different, but the Bibles that we have handed out that Ken has back there, I think you have one or two, right? Anyways, <coughs> uh, James pull, put them somewhere else. But uh, if you need one, we can get you one. Yeah, he's pointing at you, and he's pointing at you. <laughs> pointing at each other. But for now, uh, if you can, open up the first Thessalonians. Thessalonians, or Thessalonica, I should say, is still a city that's kind of uh, in, in the um, uh, up around Greece. And, and, and uh, it, it's, it was a city that was established probably about 300 years before Jesus Christ was born. It was a, a very popular city. It was a, stationed and it was strategically placed in a place where the north and the south kind of met together. The east and the west, everything just kind of converged on the Thessalonica. And it's still a very prominent seaport today. And it's probably one of the only cities in the New Testament that you can still go to. And it's thriving. I don't know about the church that, that is there, but this, this city... Kind of like maybe San Pedro or maybe San Francisco, I guess you would say. It was, it was booming. Over 200,000 people that were there, it's, it's estimated. And, and people were traveling back and forth. And it's at this place that Paul went to. Now, it's interesting on what Paul was doing in, in this uh, journey that he was on. He was going throughout all the region as much as he could to try to get the gospel message proclaimed to people. And as it was his custom of doing, he would go to the synagogues. The synagogue was the place where the Jewish people met on a weekly basis. They would meet on Sabbath, which is Saturday, uh, the last day of the week, and they would, they would discuss the Old Testament. And they would uh, get instruction. And, and it was kind of something like a church building like this, more of a community center sometimes. And sometimes it was just a, a building that was out in the outskirts of the city or sometimes in the middle of the city. But synagogue was basically the meeting place for the Jewish people. You would have to have at least 10 families in order to have a synagogue in that city. A lot of these cities didn't have synagogues in them because so they, they didn't have enough Jewish people in them. But in Thessalonica, they did. Now, if you turn, first of all, to Acts chapter 17 with me, we, I can share with you on how this church started and, and why it's a very important church for us to study because what Paul found out later, it just really surprised him. It, it just blew him away. And he was really just encouraged about what he found out and what we're going to be going through as well. Because if you want to know what a church should be like, if you want to know the model church, Thessalonica was it. But turn with me to Acts chapter 17. I just want to read to you how Thessalonica became the church of the Thessalonians. In Acts 17... And on, right above chapter 17 on mine, it says, Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. Now, it says here in verse 1, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Let me pause there for just a moment. Father, thank you once again for this 
historical lesson that you're showing us right now and what Paul did and how he was proclaiming the risen Christ, Jesus himself. And Lord, help us understand some of this terminology. Jesus, Christ, Lord, Savior. Help us understand what Paul was trying to do and what he was doing in this city called Thessalonica. Father, thank you once again on how you got him to this point and what it means for us today. As we go through this portion of scripture, I pray that you lead us in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. Okay, now, as I mentioned here a little bit ago, he was traveling. He was planting churches. He was going from place to place. He had done this three times. The first journey that he, that he went to, it was called his first missionary journey. This is his second journey, and then he does a third one later. So the three times he goes out into the regions planting churches, establishing who Jesus Christ was, reasoning with the Jewish people through the scriptures. Now, if you were here for Good Friday service, you'll remember that, on, that uh, what we talked about is that back then, all they had was the Old Testament. And when we started to open up the Old Testament, we saw how Jesus Christ had to have been crucified. He had to go through all this torture. Hey, he had to have been because that's the way God had wanted it. He had stated it from the very beginning, 800 years before Jesus Christ was born. He's talking about a crucifixion, a crucifixion that people hadn't even invented yet. People weren't even being crucified yet, yet here it is. God's talking to people about how the Christ, the Messiah, is to be crucified. David talked about him a thousand years before he was born. In the Old Testament, in Genesis, we, we see a picture of Jesus Christ uh, of being the, the Savior, the sacrificial lamb, and how uh, Adam and Eve, our first parents, were covered by the sacrificial lamb. See, for the Jewish people, they knew that they were sinners. They knew that they had sinned and they had to cover that sin some way, some, some form, and somehow. And what God did is he started what was called the sacrificial system. The Levitical priests were to initiate and help the people come to a place where they can come before, come to God. And, and so the priests, what they did is they would receive the sacrificial lamb. And they would bring the lamb once a year and they would sacrifice it on Passover. And it was a symbol not only of them repenting of their sins, but also that the lamb itself was sprinkled on the doorposts of their heart, but literally on their homes back when they were in Egypt. And the angel of death had gone over or passed over the house. This is why they celebrate Passover, because the angel of death passed over their house and saved them. And every year they would sacrifice a lamb so that their sin would be forgiven and the angel of death would pass over their houses and their homes. And so throughout the year, they would bring in all these different sacrificial systems. They would bring in, uh, um, excuse me, sacrificial um, animals like turtle doves and they would bring in goats and rams and, and bulls. Uh, they would bring in grain offerings. They would bring in wine offering. They would bring in all kinds of different offerings so that their sin could be forgiven before God. They would have a fellowship offering. They would have a, a grain offering. They would have these various types of offerings because that's how God had initiated. He says, you sin, you have to bring a sin offering. If you do something wrong, you have to bring something to appease God. And, and that's, what he, that's how he had set up this sacrificial system. The, the interesting thing is that today, a lot of people are still trying to appease God by doing something, by praying or by working or by giving of something in trying to appease God through this sacrificial system. Because the reason I say this is strange or this is unwarranted, you shouldn't be doing that anymore. Because when Jesus Christ came, when Jesus came, he became the perfect sacrifice. And the sin of the world was taken away by that one act on the cross. And so therefore, the law is no longer, we're not obligated to fulfill the law or to, to hold on to the law. Now, what we do is we place our faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we respond in serving him and to worshiping him. And we strive for holiness and we strive for righteousness. And we strive to, to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You don't work for your salvation. Your sin has been taken care of. God took care of it. And, and so what Paul was going through, he, he was going through all these cities and he was sharing with them from the scriptures on how Jesus Christ 
the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one in Hebrew. Christ means the anointed one in Greek. Jesus is God saves in, 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 in the Jewish language. Savior, Adonai, is the, the ruler of the world. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The Christ. Jesus, Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title, what he's done. He's the anointed one. And Paul says, the one that God talked about here a thousand years ago, 800 years ago, from the beginning of time, has appeared in the form of Jesus Christ. And he took all the sin of the world. And so because the Jewish people knew that they were sinners, and every time they had to come out with some sort of a sacrificial system or sacrificial offering to get rid of that sin, now they were liberated. They were set free from that sacrificial system because Jesus Christ took care of it all. And the gospel message, the good news is this, is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to relieve you and take away your sin when you place your faith in him. Now, what we're going to be going through here in these next few weeks through the book of First Thessalonians is, okay, so how do I know that I'm one of those that have been set free? How do I know that I'm one of those that are saved? How do I know that I'm one of those that are chosen, the elect? How, how do I know that I've been adopted? How do I know that I'm one of those? And that's the question that the book of Thessalonians answers. Because in this journey, as we go through this book, we're going to find a lot of things that, that sometimes that we go through in life, we have questions about, we're wondering, okay, how does that fit into my life? Thessalonians is going to answer that because they were a model church. A lot of the questions that they had, they were able to kind of go through the scriptures and, and so Paul is helping them understand this and he corrects them on a couple other things as well. He corrects them about the second coming. He corrects them about the rapture. He corrects them about those that have fallen asleep or have died before uh, Jesus Christ returns. So, so there's some things that are still being corrected. But for the most part, this book, this letter is a very encouraging letter, different than all the other letters that we've been going over. Remember uh, Colossians, these people were just caught up in this this uh, religion that was coming in from all over the place. Galatians, oh, they were really in trouble. Corinthians, it was the worst church <laughs> ever in all the New Testament. I mean, every one of these churches had a lot of problems, and, and so did Thessalonica. But they are and understanding what it means. And, and so here's, here's what Paul did. And he went in verse 4 again in and, and, and Acts chapter 17. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the great as many, uh, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. In other words, there were quite a few women that were leading that community and a lot of Greek people, especially and some of the Jewish people as well. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Jason, I guess, was the place where Paul was staying at, Paul, Silas and Timothy. They were probably staying there seeking to bring them out uh, to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason out uh, and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they, all, they, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So Paul is proclaiming Jesus Christ as king of the Jews, He's proclaiming it in the synagogues. The Jewish people got mad at him. They says, you know, this is not right. You're taking away our authority. You're taking away our power. And so they start saying that he's proclaiming another king. And we only have one king, and that's Caesar. And, you know, when you do that, it's kind of like going up against the government. And so what they were accusing Paul of doing was establishing a new king and getting rid of Caesar. Well, you know, the new king or the president or the old king, the president, wasn't going to stand for it. So they, they went in, and poor Jason, I don't know how he got dragged out, but they, they extorted money from him. Uh, and, you know, because they're, they're accusing Paul and Silas of turning the city upside down. And then, then verse 8, And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason, and the rest, they let them go. Verse 10, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. 
Now, these Jews were more noble than the Thessalonians. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So I don't know if you've ever heard of the Bereans. The Bereans were the ones that, that they're talking about here in Berea. Bereans, we used to have a bookstore here called the Bereans, and the Bereans were the ones that studied the scriptures. Paul told them about the scriptures, and they says, okay, we, well, hold on, hold on. Let me see that. Let me, let me look into that. Let me, this is why I share with you, you need to have a Bible in your possession. When I share something with you, you got to have the word and go back and say, okay, let me see what it says and take some notes. I'm gonna, you know, that was a lot of stuff you gave us today, Pastor. I should go home and study this. Yes, you should. I give you notes. I give you handouts. I give you verses. You know, we want you to have a Bible in your hands. I want you to look at this. I want you to see what it is that we're talking about. I'm not just giving you anything from out of the air. As a matter of fact, we're not even in the book of Thessalonians today. Right now, we're in the book of Acts. I'm sharing with you how this all started. And so when, the, when they left Thessalonica, they were there only three Sabbaths. They left there because of all this uproar and everything else that was going on. So they went to Berea. And Berea, the Bereans, they were more noble. They had the scriptures. They were reading. They were checking. But here's the point I want to get to. And this is over in verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Everywhere that Paul went, you had these mobs. You had these agitators. You had these, these people that were constantly bringing up and, you know, they were just bullhorns and everything else causing a big stir and distorting what Paul was trying to say and do. But when they did that in Thessalonica, it was so horrific. It was, he, 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 this happened to him quite a bit. A couple of times he was stoned. A couple of times he was beat up and left for dead. And in Thessalonica, it must have been pretty hard because they left. Three weeks, that's all they had. And, and so this, the reason I'm bringing this to you right now is because in three weeks, Paul would spend months with people. He would spend almost a year in trying to disciple and to build the church. So in three weeks, you know, Paul says, you know, three Sabbaths, it's all he had with them. It's all I had with them. We had to get out of there. What happened to this, these people in Thessalonica? The good thing is that we have a letter that Paul sent them. And he sent them this letter because he heard of their faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to get into that right now. He was concerned. He was concerned about the city. He was concerned about these guys that were worshiping idols. And he was telling them, no, no don't, don't worship those things. Don't worship the idol of Baal. Don't worship the idol of Mammon. Don't worship the idols of, you know, child sacrifice, of, you know, trying to make money. Don't, don't be, what you need to do is you need to focus on Jesus Christ because he's the one. He's the one that paid your sin, paid for your sin. And, and see, the bad news is Right next to the good news. You can't know the good news unless you know the bad news. We, we are sinners. We are so, so much in sin. If you say one lie, if you stole one thing, if you use the Lord's name in vain just once, I mean, that makes you a liar, a thief, and a blasphemer. And you cannot get into heaven with even one of those things. And the Bible goes on to say, if you commit one sin, you've committed them all. So we are guilty just because of the things that we've said or done. And God demands justice. But Jesus Christ took that upon himself. And this is what Paul is talking to people about. He says, you know, Jesus Christ took care of this. The sin that you commit every day, that you have to make atonement for, that you have to pay for, Jesus Christ has done it. So the bad news is we're still sinners, but the good news is that Jesus Christ is the Savior. And he's taken away your sin. And you cannot know the good news unless you understand the bad news. And so when Paul was preaching to these guys, showing them, you see all those laws that God made for you because he, you needed to get right with God because Adam and Eve, they sinned. And they passed it on to you guys. And what God did to Adam and Eve, he covered them. They were trying to cover themselves with fig leaves. And, you know, they dried up and they fall off and they're just running around with bushes. And God says, that's a temporary fix. Like a lot of people are trying to get a temporary fix on their life. You know, maybe if I just stop drinking, maybe if I just stop partying, maybe if I just get married, maybe if I just stop stealing, maybe if I just do good things, 
Maybe if I just do this temporary thing and try to cover myself up. Maybe if I just, you know, try to be good. Maybe if I just go to church, maybe that'll help. God says, no, you need the blood of Christ applied to your life. You've got to accept the fact that we are all sinners. You cannot work for it. You cannot cover it up. There's nothing that you can do to erase that sin because Jesus Christ has already done it. That legal system that you're trying to live under by being good, going to church and reading your Bible, giving money and doing all these right things is not going to help you because we are all sinners. Now, you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute. I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Yes, <laughs> you are supposed to get rid of all that stuff, but not to get saved. Once you get saved, that's why you do those things. That's why you go to church and read your Bible and get away from sin, because you're saved now. You recognize the fact that Jesus Christ applied his blood to your life. And for that, I am ever thankful. And I'm going to do everything I can to worship him, to love him, to praise him, to obey him, to follow him, to share him. I'm going to do everything because of what he's done for me. Now, my part is to give back to you and to everybody else and share what God has done for us. This is what happened to Paul. This is what happened to Peter. This is what happened to every other disciple that Jesus Christ came in contact with and every other person that Paul met and Peter met everywhere they went. They established these churches and these churches flourished because they understood they no longer are under the law that needs that requires some sort of sacrifice because Jesus Christ has taken care of it. He was reasoning with them through the scriptures on how Jesus, the one that they crucified, has taken away our sin. That's the good news. And so then here, <coughs> excuse me, here in this portion of scripture where we start off at, this is the background, I guess you would say, to the first Thessalonians epistle from Paul. And he says this in verse 1. I'm going back to Thessalonians now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Give you just a little bit of a background. And we're going to go back to some of that as we go through this. Because some of the things pop up <clears throat> along the way. Excuse me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, Silvanus, which is Silas, by the way, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. You see, the question that is in your outlines and on your outlines, how do I know that I'm elect? In other words, how do I know that God chose me? How do I know that I'm saved? In that, that, that should be a question that we, should, we all should be asking. You know, it's interesting because a lot of people... They say, well, you know, I, of course I'm going to heaven. You know, I, I'm good. I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I, I, I don't do too many bad things. You know, I, I've done some bad things, but I guess my good outweigh the bad. The problem is with that thinking, that logic is you cannot do enough good to pay for your sin. Your life is demanded because of the sin that you have committed. My life is demanded because of what of the sin that I have committed. And when I understood that I, my life was just, I mean, it was, it was set, it was at, at its worst. I didn't believe that I would ever, ever be able to get to heaven because I knew my life was bad. And each one of us have to get to that point where we have to recognize, I know I'm a sinner and there's no way that I'm going to make it there. But Jesus Christ made a way. And this is what Paul is saying. He says here, you know, he says, uh, to the church of the Thessalonians in, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the very first thing he says is to the church. He says the church. And, you know, we have to get a clear understanding of what the Bible means when it says church. Okay, for most people, they call this place, this building, a church. For most people, they drive down the road and they see a beautiful church. Oh, that's an old church. That's a brand new church. And, and when you say church, most people say here, the church building. I mean, we even say that from time to time. You know, I'm going to go over to the church and do some work at the office. Or I'm going to go to the church and work on the yard. Or I'm going to, you know, and we talk about that. But the church in the New Testament time is the word ecclesia. 
Ek means from coming out. Klesia is the gathering of the people. Those, th- those that are called and called out is the church. You, beloved, would be the church. You are in the church building. We have a church fellowship. We have a church campus. We have a church parking lot. We have a church yard. We, we, we'll have a picnic for the church, but the church are the people. Do you guys remember that story or that little thing that they used to do when we were in Sunday schools? You know, here's the church, here's the church, there's the steeple, open the door, and there's all the people. See, that's the church, the people inside of it. It's not the building. And we thank God for a beautiful building, but this is not the church. You are the church, the called out ones. Now, here is what the called out ones are. The called out ones are the ones that have been chosen, that have been saved, that have committed their life to Christ. Those are the called out ones. Everybody else are just participants. Everybody else are just just, uh, visitors. Everybody else is just people that are looking in from the outside. And, And I'm not saying just in this church. I'm talking in the church in general. We have a lot of church buildings filled with people that come to church trying to get by by giving their sacrifice or giving their offering or giving their, you know, I'm, I gone to church, I went to the church, I'm, I'm there, you know, I gave my, okay, God, you know, I did my part and I should be saved. And so if I die, I'll go to heaven because I used to go to church every Sunday. When Paul used the word ecclesia, and it's interesting because it almost sounds the same in Spanish, iglesia. When you say the word ecclesia, the called out ones, you're talking about the specific called out ones from God. That's who you're talking about. We want to see a little bit more about that here in just a little bit. So when Paul says the church of the Thessalonians, he's saying the people that have been called out. Because Paul right now at this point, he has gotten the word back from the people in Thessalonica. He sent Timothy, go, go find out what happened. I'm really concerned about them. I, I really wish I knew what would happen. They didn't have Twitter, Facebook. They didn't have, you know, fast mail, slow mail. They had no mail. All they had was word of mouth. And it took whatever time it took them to travel to where Paul was at and then all the way back to get to, you know, to where it was supposed to be, where they were supposed to be at. And, and, and so the news traveled slow. And Paul has now gone to Berea, and from Berea he's going somewhere else, and people are trying to find him. Hey, Paul, hey, Paul, you got to hear what's going on in Thessalonica. You got, but we only spent three Sabbaths there. I, I don't even know how that happened. I don't even know how that took place. I was listening to a, a testimony of a man named Lee Strobel, an atheist, and he was talking to his atheist friend. As a matter of fact, he, he, the way he tells the story, he says, you know, I really wanted to, to, to share something with my friend. And, and I just had this, this strong inclination that God was telling me to go talk to this, this friend of mine. And, and, you know, and, I'm, and I said, God, you really want me to talk to that man? That man hates you, God. He doesn't believe in you. Go talk to him. Go talk to him. And he says, all right, you know, he's, he's got this impression. So he goes over and he starts sharing with him Jesus Christ. He goes, you know, you, you know I don't believe in this stuff. Well, I know, but I, I just really felt and sensed that I needed to tell you about, you know, Easter's coming on. And, you know, I'd like for you to come to church and, and, and hear the message. And, you know, I'm, I'm not even going to, I don't even know why you're wasting your time. He says, I, I don't either. And he walked away. He says several months later, he went to, he was, uh, he was at, the, at the church and they were all gathered together. Some guy comes up to him and says, I want to thank you for, for sharing that message with your friend. He goes, what? He goes, yeah. I was underneath the table, hooking up the computers, putting things together, and I'm hearing you talk to this man about Jesus Christ. And the moment, the moment that I got out of there, I called my wife. We need to go to church this Sunday. It's Easter. And him and his wife joined the church and they got saved. In just a matter of minutes, you do not know. You do not know what can transpire when you share the word with somebody in just that, that moment. The point, is, the point is here, Paul was obedient. He's, he was sent there by God. The Holy Spirit had prompted him there to, to preach to these people. And, and in three Sabbaths, they heard whatever it was that Paul was trying to reason with them. And the Bible says, now we come to find out much later, that a lot of people came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But at that point in time, the city was in an uproar. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, when we read, the city was turned upside down. You had these community organizers coming and, and tearing up Paul and, and defaming him and, and saying all kinds of stuff, slandering him. 
saying that he wanted to establish a new king. Caesar was our king. We don't want another king, they were saying. And so now he finds out, you know what? There's a group of called out people there. And, and our, our efforts weren't wasted. And we didn't have the time to disciple them. We didn't have the, the energy. We didn't have the ability to talk to them. We didn't, have, we didn't have the right words. We didn't have the books. You know, I didn't have anything to give to them. And sometimes you may think, you know what, I, I, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? I don't know all that stuff. I didn't go to college. I didn't even go to seminary. I'm barely reading my Bible. But you know what? You know Jesus Christ. You know what he's done in your life. You know what you've experienced because of what he has changed in your life. And that's all it takes, beloved. That's all it takes. That's all it takes is for God to use you to be obedient to share what Jesus Christ has done for you. He goes on to say, we, and, and Paul says in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you, all, all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How does Paul know that? How does Paul know that he has chosen them? And so something is evident. There is something going on within this church body. These men and women that have committed their life to Christ, they are showing and they are projecting. They are standing firm in all these various things. And there's three things, actually four, but there's three things that I'd like to share with you. If you pull out your outline and we'll go over this here in the time that we have left. Number one, the evidence of my salvation. Number one is work. Inspired by faith. Work inspired by faith. Work inspired by faith. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what Paul is talking about here is that when, there, when there's genuine salvation in your life, when genuine faith, when genuine salvation is in your life, and when, when things have come to fruition to a point where you are now uh, working and, and working out your salvation with fear and trembling, you're not working for your salvation, but you're working it out. You, you have this, this constant doing of something for the kingdom of God. Now, I know there are a lot of people that get confused. Well, wait a minute. You know, first of all, you said you cannot work for your salvation. You cannot earn your salvation. I can't go to, you can't go to church enough to get saved. You can't give enough money to get saved. You can't read your Bible enough. You can't tell people enough about Jesus to get saved. So what are you saying that I've got to work for my salvation? It, what is this, this work that's inspired by faith? What, what, is, what is Paul talking about? Because there's a lot of people that say, yeah, I'm saved, yet they live like the world. Yeah, I'm going to heaven, but, you know, life doesn't change. They're still the same. Same mouth, same background, same everything else. And there's no change. There's no change. And so what Paul is saying, look, if you are genuinely saved, then you're going to be working your salvation out. James had told them that in the book of James. Not this James. I'm sure James will say it as well, right, James? <laughs> but in the book of James, it says, show me your faith and I'll show you my deeds. See, because faith without works is dead. You can't say you're a Christian. You can't say, well, my mama was a Christian. Well, my grandma was a Christian. And therefore, you know, it makes me a Christian. You know, I come to this church, or I go to that church, and therefore that makes me a Christian. You know, coming to a church building and believing you're a Christian is kind of like living in a garage and believing you're a Volkswagen. I, I guess in today's world, you can identify as about just about anything, I guess. You know, <laughs> but it doesn't make it so. It doesn't make it so. Coming to church does not make you a Christian. Show me your works, is what Paul is saying, what James is saying. And I'll show you my deeds. I'll show you my faith. And, and he goes on to say, well, you know, you, you believe in God? Well, that's good because even the demons believe in God. There is a work that is inspired by the faith that you have. 
Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And Hebrews is a little bit further back from Thessalonians. It's right after, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's right after Philemon. Uh, you got Thessalonians, Timothy, and then Philemon, then Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, And if you, if you haven't found it yet, we have it up on the screen. It says this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Work inspired by faith. You have, you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And faith is the assurance the knowing that I just, I just know beyond a shadow of a doubt of the things that I've hoped for. Now, when the Bible talks about hope, we're not talking about, well, I hope it happens. I wish it happens. You know, it's, you know it might happen. It's, that's not what the Bible talks about when it says hope. When you talk about hope, it's, you're placing your understanding that that is going to happen. This is a certainty. This is something that is actually going to happen. And you're, when you place your hope in Jesus Christ, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is going to happen. It's not a, oh, you know, I kind of, well, we'll see what happens type of a thing. No. You see, and when you see the, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, now faith is the assurance, the, just the know-how, just the understanding that this is going to happen, that things hope for are going to happen. Things that you already know are going to take place. How, how do I know these things? Well, because the Bible tells me that Jesus Christ is coming back. The Bible tells me that there's going to be a rapture. The Bible tells me that those who have died in Christ are going to be resurrected first. The Bible tells me that those of us that are left behind, we're going to be caught up. We're going to be studying that when we get to chapter 4. We, the Bible tells me that, that th there's, there's going to be a time right after that of tribulation, seven years. The Bible tells me that for the first three and a half years, it's going to be peace. Everybody's going to be getting along. There's going to be this one world order. Everything's going to be free. Everything's going to be good. And after, after all these things take place and after Satan's got his hooks on everybody, then the three, or three and a half years later, after that, the great tribulation takes place. And at that time, there's going to be mountains that are going to be blown from the from this, this scape here into the ocean, there's going to be all kinds of diseases. There's going to be all kinds of wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be earthquakes because the Bible tells me these things. The Bible tells me that at the end, when everybody is seeing all these things happen, they're still not going to turn to Jesus Christ. The Bible tells me that over a third of the population of the world is going to die. The Bible tells me all these things. And the Bible gives me hope and expectation that I will not have to be here for that. Because the Bible says so. How do I know that? Because the Bible says so. you got to know what the Bible says. Because the Bible is the only book, the only thing that we have. And the Bible said that Jesus Christ came and He lived a sinless life. And I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross because the Bible says so. I know that the Bible says that He was mistreated and, and beat up and abused. And, and He hung on a cross and He died and they buried Him. But I also know that He also resurrected. Because the Bible says so. And after 40 days, the Bible says that he ascended, went up to heaven. And as the people are looking up into heaven, they're watching Jesus Christ depart. Two angels are standing there and they're saying, man of Galilee, what are you looking at? This same Jesus who was taken from you will come back down in the same way. How do I know that? Because the Bible says so. You got to know what the Bible says. And so when Paul is sharing with them what, what has taken place, he's telling them, he says, you know, I want you to know <clears throat> that you have to have this faith, this assurance of things that you, that you know are going to happen. And you know what else faith is? It's the conviction of the things not seen. I am just convicted. I, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a God. People tell me, oh, there is no God. Well, just the fact that you said there is no God, you have to kind of agree that there's a God in order not to believe in Him. You know, In order for you to say, you know, there is no Po There's no podium there, really. <laughs> you got to believe that that thing is there in order for not to believe in it. See, that doesn't make it belief. That just makes it denial. And, and most people don't want to believe in God, or, you know, because you know he's going to ask you to do something. I'd rather not believe in him. That doesn't make it belief. You're just denying the actual fact that there is a God. 
And there's no way. There's no way of getting around it, no matter how you do it. And, and most, most of the time, the reason people say they don't believe in God, here's why. Because they don't want to have to follow some sort of standard. They don't want to follow the eyes. One time one person says, okay, let me ask you something, just, just for the sake of argument, just for the sake of argument. Okay, if there was a God, you think that he would have a standard? Well, yeah, of course. That's what gods do. They put up a standard. Well, it's not that you don't believe in God. You just don't want to follow his standard. Bottom line is what it is. I want to do whatever I want. So I'd rather just say there is no God. But there is a God. And I know God exists. Just like I know that the wind exists. I might not be able to see it, but I feel its effects. Just like I know that, that love is real. You know, I know that love is real. I might not be able to see it, but I, I feel its effects. God is genuine. God exists because I know what he's done in my life. And I know what he's done in countless people's lives. Oh, yes. Thank you, Lord. You know, amen. Amen and amen on that one. I've seen that happen over and over again in people's lives because of this faith that they have in the things hoped for. This, this faith in this assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Because the Bible says so. Now, the Bible goes on to say that without faith, it is impossible to please God. He'll say that, as a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, that, um, that if you don't have faith, it is impossible to please God. And we have to have faith. And the very first thing that Paul says, he says, you know what? I'm remembering, I'm remembering God. I'm remembering, therefore, I want you to know that, uh, that before God the Father, your work of faith, your work of faith, your work of faith, you know, you guys are working this out. I only had three weeks with you guys. And God, the Holy Spirit, he just transformed your lives. And you guys are working this out. Poor Jason, he got beat up, drug out, took all his money. And you guys still have faith. You guys don't care about what's happening in your city, how people are accusing you guys of all kinds of stuff. Matter of fact, they were accusing Paul of saying, you know, you, you see, this guy was just a phony. He just wanted to make a name for himself. Because he came in here, stirred everything up. Metió la cuchara, como dice. You know, he just stirred things up. And then he left. Yeah, the guy is a phony. And they were accusing Paul and making all kinds of accusations. But these people in Thessalonica, they love Jesus Christ. And they said, yes, I know the bad news. I know I'm a sinner. I, I, these gods that we serve, they're not helping us. Not, but, but Jesus Christ has changed my life. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Lord. And, and so these people are going. And as a matter of fact, Paul tells the people in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We spent countless of hours on this, this portion just here. That, you know, we take off the old, put on the new. Take off the old garment, put on the new garment. Take out the old man, put on the new man. It, you, we just were constantly taking it off. And putting it on. You do that once. I'm always, I'm always talking to you about taking out the old man. Just get rid of him. But that old man seems to crawl right back up again, you know, and makes me do things. Okay, got to get rid of him. And he just kind of, he's, he's just hanging around there. Why is that, Pastor? Why is that old man still crawling around my flesh? Well, because you're still alive. Because you're still here. The day I stand over your gravestone and your coffin... This man has no more flesh. <laughs> this man is not going to be bothered by his old man anymore. But you know what? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. Amen? You know what? You, have, you can overcome. You can overcome. And so this work that we have, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, it says, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. You don't get saved by working for it. You get saved by faith. Faith is what? Remember, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. If you haven't gotten, written that verse down yet, you should because it's not going to be in your outline. But for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your, your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. You see this faith that God is talking about, that Paul is talking about? This, it's, it's not, you can't build up this faith on your own. 
See, it's by grace you've been saved, and you have to have this faith through faith. And that faith doesn't come from your own doing. It is the gift of God. God gives you that faith because you're chosen. He gives you that faith. He shows you that faith. He, he expects for you to live in that faith. And then you cannot work for it so that no one can boast. And then he goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, it's this work that we do that God has given you. He prepared you. He prepared you for this. Everything that you've done up to this point in life, when you commit your life to Christ, everything that you've done, God has been preparing you to put you into action. Think about that. Everything. Well, okay, even the bad things. Even the bad things. Not just you're going to be doing the bad things, but just the, just the way you would connive and think things through and re reason things out. Well, that seems reasonable. It's illegal. It's unethical. But you know what? And, and just being able to move those things in your mind. Now, you don't want to use those instruments for bad anymore, but you do it for good. I've heard a lot of people say, man, I was just sold out for the drug world. I was a, uh, I was a hopeless dope fiend, and now I'm a dopeless hope fiend. You know, and, and I just, now I'm just everything that I used to do for the world, I want to do it all for Jesus Christ. And I, I would do this and do this. I mean, all my scandalous life, and you know, all that energy and for doing bad, I want to use that energy for good. I want to do it all for good now, for the glory of God. And God has prepared you beforehand that we should walk in these things. And God has a goal for you. He has, he has uh, something that he needs for you to do. For it is God, Philippians 2.13 says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know, I, I think one of the greatest, one of the greatest uh, desires for most people is that they count, that they matter. I believe most people want to, you know, live for something, do something. Some people want, aspire to be great poets and singers, and, but everybody wants to at least leave something here on this earth saying, I, I did this. And most people want to believe that, you know, my life is important and I should be able to, to do something. God has created you and he's made you and he, he, is, wants, to, he wants to work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure for what he's designed you for. As a matter of fact, if you go back to that other verse that we just read in Ephesians chapter 2, for you have been saved through, uh, by grace through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then he says, for we are his workmanship. Workmanship is the word poema in Greek. Some of you probably already know what that is. What is a poema? It's a poem. Or it is a masterpiece. For we are his masterpiece. We are his workmanship. He's created you and made you to be a work of art. To do. And he created you that we should walk in them for his good pleasure. Number two, labor prompted by love. Going back to Thessalonians. He says, we give thanks to God. And then verse 3, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and your labor of love. Your work of faith and labor of love is a little bit different than work. See, work is something that we do to, you know, to, to try to get things done. But this labor, this, this labor of love is, is this labor that we, we strive with everything we have to try to make sure that it comes out to the end of what we are trying to accomplish. It's it's a labor of love. It's it's hard. It's I don't want to say it's harder than work, but it's it's something that you continuously do to make sure that you do this to the utmost and to the best of your ability. And what are we working at? Love. Love, this labor of love. In Galatians six ten, he says, "So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith." We are to love one another. We, we are to love one another. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said, and this was something that they would say all the time. Okay, you shall love your neighbor. Okay, love your neighbor as yourself. But you got to hate your enemy because you don't want your enemy around you. And that's what they would say. The Jewish people would say that. And Jesus says to them, well, I want to tell you something else. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons 
of your Father who is in heaven. You want to know how you're saved? That you love your enemies. That doesn't mean you let them take advantage of you, but you love them. You pray for them. Those that persecute you, those that are dogging you, disrespecting you, those that you feel and you sense that are really just, you know, dishonoring you, you pray for them and you love them. It's hard to love people like that, you know? Did my Spanish just come out there? <laughs> it's hard to love people like that. Isn't that true? <laughs> it is. It's still, I know it is. But I'm commanded to do that. How do I know that? Because it's in the Bible. You know, as a matter of fact, that portion of scripture that Jesus is talking about, you know, he, he, he makes the, he says that he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain down on the just and the unjust. God is taking care of that enemy of yours, even if he's good or if he's evil. God has given him and given him the common grace that we all get. And so he's still God's, uh, you know, creation. They may not be God's children, but they're his, still his creation, and you got to love them. Then he goes on saying, for if you love those who only love you, what reward do you have then? You know, I mean, it's, it's easy to love my spouse and my kids, you know, because I love them, they love me back, and hey, we have this good uh, relationship. But, and then, he, then Jesus goes on to say, but, but see, even the evildoers do that. Even, our, even the enemies, you know, the, those that are just out in the streets, and even they love each other. And they, they can do that. Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And how do you become perfect? You become perfect by loving your enemies. Not just those that you want to love. Not just those that seem to do you right. Even those that do you wrong. That's hard. But you know what? With the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do that. This is why this word here, you got to work at it. You got to strive for it and you got to keep doing it. You got to keep doing it until finally it just comes easy. Okay, I got that one done. Go to the next one. Jesus said to his disciples, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If what? If you have love for one another. That's how people are going to know that we are his disciples. Can you imagine, and, and this is, you know, I, I, I hate to mention it this way, you know, but, but we've had people come here and say, you know, you guys really love each other. You know, I can see that. And go, well, yeah, you know, I mean, I think every church should be like, it. oh, no. <laughs> I get that a lot. Oh, no. I go, oh, really? Okay, I don't want to know about it. And, and it's, it's, to me, it's a black eye to the church, to Jesus Christ. And I've been a part of some groups like that within the church. And it shouldn't be like that. Our love should be genuine for everyone. In 1 John 4.20, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, guess what, that, guess what the Bible says? He's a liar. If you can't even love your brother, but you say you love God, oh, I love God. I love, that brother, I don't want anything to do with that guy. Well, the Bible calls you a liar. As a matter of fact, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. How's that right? How can you say that you love God? You, you don't even see him, but your brother, you can't, you can't even stand him? The Bible calls you a liar. We've got to show love to our brother. We've got to show love to those that are around us because we have come from death into life because we love the brothers. As a matter of fact, in 1 John 2.11, it says this, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, I don't know if we can get this up on the board, but in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, you might want to write this one down too. This is very key. And it's not in your outlines. It says this, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Now, make, hear, hear, hear me out here. John the disciple of Jesus Christ, just made a distinction. Jesus made the same distinction. And, and we've got to stop saying that everybody in the world is God's children. No, they're not. We're all God's creation. We're all God's creation. But not everybody is God's child. And we say that just like, oh yeah, everybody, we're all created by God and we're all God's children. No, we're not. Jesus said this. John is saying this. He says, but it is evident 
And, you know, it's evident. It should be, it should be evident. You should be able to see this. It is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. I don't care how much you say you love God. I don't care how much you say you're a Christian. I don't care how much you go to church. If you do not practice righteousness, you cannot be a child of God. You see, you, you've got to practice righteousness. I'm not saying that you perfect it, but at least you're striving for it. And when you fail and you fall, you say, you know what? I want to keep going. I want to keep going. I want to get this right. I want to get, and that's all we are. We're a bunch of people that haven't gotten it right, but we repent and we ask God for forgiveness and we move forward. And we are those that do not practice righteousness, nor is the one who does not love his brother. There's that word again. You got to love your brother. And what we're talking about, Adelphoi, talking about the brethren within the church. Not our carnal brother. I mean, I pray that it's the same in every family, that your brother, your carnal brother, is actually within the church. But your spiritual brother is going to last a lot longer than your carnal brother. Love. It's, it's that artist work. It's that, that, that work that you do, the ergon, where we get the word energy from. It's all the energy that you focus and you put it into this trying to accomplish and to expand this deed and trying to get it done. And you're trying to make it work. Number three, endurance founded in hope. We talked a little bit about hope. Paul says in verse three again, he says, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. This steadfastness, this perseverance, this stick in spite of anything else, we have hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Not wish. Of I, I know, I know that I know that this is going to happen. Why? Because the Bible tells me. The Bible said this. I know Jesus Christ is coming. I know my sin is forgiven. I know that he died on the cross for me. I know that i got to love my, my, my enemies. I know these things. And be, why do I know these things? Because that's what the Bible says. And I'm going to stick to it. I'm going to keep going and keep going in spite of all adversity. Some of you have gone through a lot of adversity in life. You live as old as I am. You're going to go through a lot of adversity. There are things that are going to happen in your life that are going to cause you to Second guess, you know, what's going on? Why did this happen? How is this happening? And you keep going because you know that you have hope in Jesus Christ. You have this endurance. In other words, you know, it's like a runner. He, he endures, he keeps going, and he keeps going, and he keeps going. And, and, and you know, you're, you're, you're only halfway there. Last night, we traveled in from Fresno, and, and it was about 1 o'clock in the morning when we finally got home, and, and I, I'm done. I, I, I want to go to sleep. I want to take a nap. She says, my wife says, no, pull over. <laughs> you're going to go outside and stretch. You're going to jog it a little bit. You're going to take some uh, uh, deep breaths and say, you're going to get your endurance, get your endurance going again. you got to get keep going, and then got to stretch. Oh, I, I came back in the car. Okay, I feel better now. No. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to take a pause. You got to step back, take a deep breath. You know, Lord, I, all this stuff that is just falling heavy on my life, and I just want to, I just want to end it. I just want to quit. Step out, step back, take a deep breath. All right, Lord. And the best place to do that is in the church, with people that you know, that you trust, people that that just have your back, people that want to encourage you. You know, because if you go to people that you used to hang out with in the world, you know what they're going to tell you? Ah, forget about it. You know, just, just, you know, let's go drink a beer. You know what, man? I'll solve all your problems. Here, I got this, whatever it is. I got this. This will take care. Yeah, I better stop there. This will take care of all your problems. You know? Yeah, my old lady's been, you know what? Just leave her, man. Just, that's what the world's going to tell you. They're going to tell you all kinds of nonsense. But when we come here and you talk to somebody about what you're going through, guess what? We're here to help you. Amen. To get the steadfast hope that you keep and you, you hope and you endure and you keep going in spite of what it is that you feel like. Romans 8.24 says, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? I mean, if I hope for a computer, okay, well, that wasn't too hard because I already got one. 
If I hope for a car, well, I, I already got a car. But there's some things that you don't have that you can't see. And who hopes on things for what you can see? And for in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope at all. I hope in Jesus Christ. I hope, my, I expect that it's going to happen in heaven. My hope, my expectation is that Jesus Christ is going to return. And this world is falling apart very slowly. But my hope is on Jesus Christ. It's built on nothing less. In 2 Thessalonians, we're going to see this in the next letter that we go through. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. You're, you're sticking to it. You're going and you're going because of what you've gone, even because of what you've gone through. We know that you're going to go through all this. You're going to get through it. 1 John 5, 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is, who is, that over, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? When you know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He died on the cross, resurrected, and coming back, what more do you got to fear? You can make everything. You can get through anything in life. And I just want to touch on this, this verse here. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. You, gotta, you have to have a good handle on your election. Number four. You have to have a good handle on, on your election. You know, my screen just kind of froze up. An understanding. An understanding, a handle on your election. You've got to have an understanding. What does that mean? And we're going, to, we're going to cover that next week. You see, when Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. When you see that, you go, oh, wait a minute, but I thought I raised my hand. I thought I came forward. I thought I said that prayer. I thought I'm the one that made that decision. Jesus says, no. I mean, I used that, and I'm glad you did, but I chose you. I'm the one that called you. <clears throat> but I thought I was the one that you, well, you know, I, I'm the one that chose you. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen. You didn't choose me, Jesus says. I chose you. What's the last verse? I can't remember what the last verse was. Somebody, somebody. Mm -mm. That one. But God, oh yeah. But God chose what is foolish. I like this verse. <laughs> he chose me because I was foolish. He chose me because I'm the foolish one. I'm the, I'm the, you know, I'm the clown. I guess, you know, the foolish things of the world. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Next time somebody calls you a fool, say, yep, <laughs> I sure am. And God chose me anyways. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. We were talking about this the other day. He says, you know, it's interesting that, that God knows everything. He knows your life. He knows everything that you have done and you're going to do. And he chose you anyways. That, that, ought, that ought to humble you. That ought to bring you to a point in your life where he says, you know, Lord, I, I'm, not, I'm not even worthy of being chosen. I'm not. When you understand that part, I'm not even worthy. I know my foolishness. I'm not even worthy to be chosen by you. Now you get to start to understand. You get a glimpse of what grace is. This amazing grace that we sing about. Now you're starting to understand a little bit about what this grace is. See, grace is defined as unmerited favor. In other words, it's something you don't deserve. You don't deserve God's grace. I know. I know I don't, but He gave it to me anyways. God, I don't know why you would choose, even though you know what I've done. You know me inside and out. Yet, He chose you. Now, the evidence of this salvation, we're going to be walking through this, and this is just part of it. Your, your faith, your work and faith, your faith and works, your labor and love, and your endurance uh, of hope, your steadfastness of hope. Those are, and your understanding of election. Because 
when you, when you grasp this, when you understand this, this is how you are working out your salvation. Okay, well, you know, I, all right, I love God, and I'm doing it in faith. I'm working in hope, and I, I understand this, this endurance. And, and, and I, yes, life is hard. Things take place in life. Yet I know that I'm saved because of what Jesus Christ has promised me. Because why? It says so in the Bible. It says so right here. Let me ask you to stand. You know, Paul only had three Sabbaths, three Saturdays. And I'm just going to go out on the limb here and say that, you know, I'm sure Paul spent the whole day with these people. And, and people followed him, and he probably spent some more time with them. And maybe throughout the week, they even talked a little bit more. And, and I only, I've only had you here for one hour, hour and a half now. And, and I was able to share with you a little bit of what Paul was going through. And there's, there's a whole lot more. But I am anticipating. And I, and I have this hope. Not this I believe, I wish. I have this expectation that God's word is not going to come back void. I have this understanding that the word of God is penetrating your heart. And I have this anticipation that you're going to repent and you're going to follow Jesus Christ. That is my anticipation, my hope. That is my expectation, my belief. Because God's word never comes back void. And yes, it's only been an hour. You'll come back next week. It'll be another hour. And if Paul can do this in three weeks, I believe we can do this in the same amount of time. However, You've got to repent. Every one of you, every one of us have got to repent. And we've got to be moving forward. In the three things, the four things that we just talked about. Father in heaven, thank you once again for giving us this opportunity, Lord. To, and it is an awesome opportunity. I, I speak about these opportunities that we just take advantage of and that we're here. You've drawn us here. You've called us here. You chose us here. And Lord, we could be anywhere else today as is happening throughout the world, and even in San Bernardino. And we can be just about anywhere else. But today we are here to hear your word and to hear what it is that we need to do and to see how it is that you're working in our life. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for how you uh, just love us. And, Lord, we want to see this church. We want to be this church. We want to be a church like the people in Thessalonica that hear the word and, and study it and apply it and, and we move forward. This is the type of church we want to be. We want to be a model church. So thank you, Lord, again for this portion of scripture, I pray. Dismiss us now from this place, but never from your presence, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, I'll be up here for a moment. If you'd like to come up and have a word of prayer, I'd like to pray for you and pray with you.